Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Now, the full name is George Stanley Barclay. Spelt as in Barclays Bank without the money. Uh, my age is, at the moment is 87. I have perfect eyesight and hearing and haven't gone bananas. And my rank varied a lot because in the situation I was in, um, my substantive rank was uh, flight lieutenant. And that's what the photo is in everything. But I had all, every other sort of rank because the casualties were quite enormous. Like we would put out, say, 12 aircraft on a raid and the only one that got back was me. So um, if the flight leader got shot down that night or whatever, um, I found myself being the flight leader until I could find somebody. So I was everything from acting uh, squatty, squadron leader to temporary wing commander, God knows what not. And then when they replaced me, uh, then I went back to my standard of rank. Okay. So uh, it was quite funny really, uh, not knowing from day to day until I looked at the crew list on the board where I was. Uh, and your serial number? 413369. Right. The Air Force always prefaced the uh, um, serviceman's number by the year he went in the Air Force. Well, I went in the Air Force in 1940, but I got a 41 prefix because I was still technically in the Army. And I'd applied for a transfer from the Army to the Air Force to learn to be a pilot. And um, so at that time, our defence people weren't quite sure what they wanted the Air Force to do. Was it attacking? Was it reconnaissance? Was it going to England? Uh, bombers? Fighters? What the hell? So because there was a grave chance of me being dragged back into the Army on communications, um, I didn't get my Air Force number until March 41. So um, had you joined the army when the war broke out? I didn't have any option. I was uh, 15 years old and I was a young clerical cadet to work for the State Hydroelectric uh, Department in Palmerston North. And our chief clerk was a World One vet and every cadet had to join the Terriers. This was in uh, mid-39, just before the war started. So all the other cadets were older than me. I was 15. So we all went to the drill hall, lined up in front of the recruiting sergeant, and I put my age up four years. I went up from 15 to 19 in a shot and um, got away with it. And uh, because I had my trick, I was the order room clerk, and my number in those days was 2 bar 2 bar 222, which was the 2nd Battalion of the Wellington West Coast Regiment, because it was in Palmerston North. So when I got in the Air Force, I was 2 by 2 by 2 2 2 until they figured that I was better off as a pilot, so they then renumbered me 413369. Okay. Um, and so your, your Army career, where did that take you? Nowhere. It was, um, it was 
territorials, the pre-war, but when the war broke out, they, were, they put the territorials, the 2nd Battalion of Wellington West Coast, as they did in Waikato and Christchurch and all over New Zealand, the territorial units were put on a full wartime basis with uh, military discipline and, you know, we were no longer territorials that just went into camp when they told you to, we were full time. Well, I hated it. And I could already fly an aeroplane because I lived at Milson in Palmerston North where <coughs> Squadron Leader McGregor was a World War One fighter pilot and he used to do barnstorming right around New Zealand. And as a, about a 12 or 13 year old, I got a job cleaning his windshields and tidying the aircraft up, making sure that patches went on and whatever. Well, little by little, I was allowed to ride in it with him. And then when I was about 14, I was allowed to pilot it. And when I was 15, I could take off, land and fly it. So when I got in the Air Force for my elementary flying training, I um, was allowed to fly solo after about four and a half hours because I'd already, uh, here's me, supposed to be 19, could already fly an aeroplane. And they, the instructors knew I'd trained under Squadron Leader McGregor. So nobody asked any questions and I just went on doing it. But being 19 after, or 20 I think it was by then, 19, um, I knew I was supposed to be having technically a 21st birthday, but I was only 16. So I got offered the opportunity of going to Canada as part of the early uh, Empire Air Training Scheme. And uh, so I duly went to Canada as a civilian in the uh, Mariposa and uh, went to Saskatoon in Saskatchewan flying multi engine Cessna cranes, which were like a small bow fighter. I've got pictures of me somewhere. And it was only when I was commissioned that they found out my age. So they said I was too young to be flying in operations, I'd already done about eight. So I, they said, well, you can be an instructor then until you're 19. And that's what I was. And then I was posted through the normal advanced training thing on uh, Cessna Cranes, Airspeed Oxfords, Mark Wynne Wellingtons, uh, until I was sent to a squadron, which was a Wellington squadron flying for a start Mark 1Cs, had two 800 horsepower Peggy engines, and with a big effort it could get, it could get with a fuel and bomb load up to about 12,000 feet. And then we went on to the Mark III Wellington, which had the uh, Hercules 1200 horsepower engines. And then the Mark X came out, and that was a beautiful aircraft. It was just about the fastest bomber we had till, until the Mosquito came along. Uh, then I was posted to 106 Squadron at Collinsbury to um, learn to or convert onto Manchester's. And of the 34 different types of aeroplane I've flown, the only one I was dead scared of was Manchester. I really was. I, I'd go down to the crew room every morning and have a look and see what was, who's scheduled to do what. I could fly a, a Manchester, but the first one I ever saw 
at Coningsbury, took off, I was at the guardhouse, just got out of a taxi, took off, got to about a hundred feet, puff of smoke out of the starboard engine, and kaboom. And I thought, Jesus, I wonder if I can um, get out of here. When it went past me to get on the uh, runway to take off, I looked up and the pilot was about oh, 20 odd feet up in the air. It had four Vulture, Rolls-Royce Vulture 24-cylinder engines. And it was a failure because the engines always had lubrication problems. And although it did several operations, it must have accounted for more deaths per aeroplane heavy aircraft than any other aircraft we ever had. Well, what they did, uh, they extended the wingspan, used the same fuselage, same everything, and put four Rolls-Royce Merlins on it, and it became a Lancaster. So um, I liked the Mark 10 Wellington, and they sent them out to the uh, out to the Middle East with the idea of doing fast bombing raids on Ploesti, which was the, where the Germans were giving their oil from. And they were very good aircraft. But the problem was that dozens of them got shot down by our own friendly fire, because if you're a rear gunner in a Stirling or a Lancaster or a Halifax, and you see a single-engined or multi-twin-engined aircraft with a single fin and rudder, you don't wait till it gets right up to your turret before you say, you are Mark 10 Wellington. And so what they were doing, as soon as they saw the fin and rudder, it had the same silhouette at night time as JU-88. So the losses of them were pretty horrible, including me. And so they then, uh, 166, then converted straight back to Lancaster's, which I'd been flying at um, Coningsby. But I didn't do an operation on a Manchester. Oh, you didn't? No, no. Well, I go down the crew room and they used to put the who's on tonight. And uh, I'd be frightened to look at the board. Anyway, um, I knew I must be getting right on the edge of having to go and win. And the RAF withdrew the whole lot. That's it. No more. You can go back to your squadrons until we got the Lancasters in sufficient numbers for you guys to fly. And we'd flown to Lancaster. But the production was very small. The, um, you know, probably only 20 a week to start with. So I went back to fly the new Mark 10 Wellington to my original 166 squadron. Oh, so you went back to the same squadron? That yeah, you oh yeah, yeah, they gave us the option. Well, because we didn't have any Lancaster to fly, and they weren't flying any Manchesters because they were kaput. In that book there, there's pictures of these Manchesters, and they had a dreadful, another dreadful habit. They had a single fin. They had two elliptical fins like the Lancaster, and on the back of the um, top of the aircraft was one single fin. And when the mid-upper gunner rotated his turret on landing, which was a mandatory, he had to do that, the turbulence would take that fin clean off. I tell you, um, if we'd have known about this, I would have simply refused to transfer. I didn't have to go because the CA didn't want me to go. He was the same name as myself, Barclay. 
<coughs> but they were, I was scared of them. I, I've got to say it. You know, I'd get in things, start it up, and I'm waiting all the time on takeoff for one of the engines to blow. You only had about 20 seconds when the engine seized up before it blew up. I only know of one officer who got back from a raid on one engine and he was given an immediate distinguished service order. So it was a very dangerous, much-hated aeroplane. But it became the Lancaster, which was probably the best aircraft that we produced, although mozzies were pretty good. Well, so was this all, the, um, all before they found out about your age, or was this after you... Um, oh no, this was after. So that, that's why I went to do conversion on the heavies at Coningsby. So but you said you'd already done a few operations? Oh yeah, well, there's a Wellington from uh, 166 Squadron. So when you had your very first operation, how old were you then? Uh, 1942, I'd be... I wouldn't have been nine, I was eight, right on the edge of turning 19. Because right. I was 21 in 1944, May the 2nd, 44. As a matter of interest, I, after I escaped, I was back in London, and it was VE night on the 9th of May. And I'm in London watching all the celebrations, and um, it suddenly dawned on me, I had done six years uh, wartime service, counting the earlier terriers and whatever, and I had turned 22 on the Friday before, the 2nd of May. And so my six years was 16 through to 22. Amazing. Yeah. But at that age, all teenagers think they're bulletproof. And I got out of crash after crash, bailed out, got caterpillars to prove it. Um, I did it twice. The first time I landed in the Heritage Estuary in England, and the second time I landed on the Somme in occupied France and was wounded and I was taken prisoner and very well treated too. The German doctors were marvellous. Okay, well can we um, explore those? Can you take me through the first one um, first? When what, you had what, your... Bailing out? Yeah. Well, um, it was a very heavily clouded day and um, my uh, squadron was detailed to do navigation or training and I had about four navigators and we used to fly through heavy cloud on a predetermined course to give them the experience of navigating and popping out of the cloud and being where they were supposed to be. Well the balloons, barrage balloons in England used to normally be let out to about 4,000 feet but because there was no aeroplanes flying much in England on that particular day. Um, I was flying at about 14,000 feet on predetermined pre pre courses given to me by the navigator. And we had a little radio thing on every aircraft habit called a TO-9. And it was the same frequency as a little radio that all these balloons had on them, called squeakers. 
and they had the same cyclic noise as a amulet, like wee, 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 wee. And when you turned your radio on, all I could hear was squeakers. And I thought, something's mighty weird here. Here's me at 14,000 feet, or thereabouts, I can't remember precisely. And squeakers going off. Well, squeakers don't go off at 14,000 feet. It turned out later, of course, that the balloon people had been given the opportunity to let their balloons out to the full length of their cables because they didn't get a chance to do that very often and really stretch the cables out and whatever. So the damn things were up at about 14,000 feet. Well, before I could do anything, wham, I hit the trailing, hanging off the balloon was a whole lot of steel wire or rope stuff. And they hit the aircraft, the, we had cable cutters on the wings, and they were going bang, 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 chopping cables. But both engines were buggered. So I gave the order to bail out. And uh, all the, my, I had a skeleton crew, but I had these navigators. And they needed a Wallace operator and uh, for the exercise. So when my turn came, which was last, I jumped out and come through the cloud and I'm in the wash, not the wash, sorry, um, the heritage estuary. And it was miles of mud to the shore. And you couldn't walk on it, it was all quivery mud because the tide was out. And I tried to, I laid on my parachute. I couldn't uh, walk anywhere. And the next thing, some military guys appeared out of the gloom towing a little sled, they all had snowshoe things on, and they were the Royal Observer Corps. And they'd seen what had happened, and they thought there'll be air crew out in that mud somewhere. As it turned out, I'd gone a bit further into the estuary than my passengers did. They all landed on dry land. I didn't, I landed in the mud. So they chucked me on this um, little sleds thing, and off, running, because the tide comes in faster than a human can run. And by the time that, and I was at least a mile or two miles offshore, and eventually the tide caught us up, but by this time the sand was more um, suitable for moving on. So I ran like buggery. And by the time we got ashore, the water was up to my knees. Because I remember my lovely New Zealand flying boots were full of water. So that was one. Number two was I've never been sure whether I had a sudden engine failure or whether it was a night fighter. There was a night fighter hit us because I got bits of metal in me and my hands and one piece went in my eye there and came out behind my ear. Just about the size of a BB, I think it might have been. But I don't know when the um, port engine gave out, whether it was because of cannon fire. The, we were hit by cannon fire, and it was an ME 110. But whether they stopped the engine or not, I don't know. I'd had a bit of a problem with the uh, engine before takeoff and losing revs on one, car, on one magneto. And it might have been the fighter that did it. It could have been a stray 
effect shell uh, or um, could have just done it by natural causes because of the failure of a magneto. So I've never been sure. And when you're wounded and the aircraft's full of smoke and whizzing bits of metal and everyone's screaming their heads off, you haven't got much time to go and analyse what did it. So I kept flying on one engine from Duisburg to the centre of the Somme, not very far from Amiens, and I bailed out last. And I must have bailed out at a world record low height because one of the <coughs> guys has written a book and he said that there was no way I could be alive because I would have been too low uh, when I bowed out. But I got out of my pilot seat, and nobody in the aeroplane but me, grabbed my chest-type chute out of the stowage, which was down by the entrance door. There was a damn great hole where everyone got in, and I was dead scared I might fall straight through it. But when the aeroplane had started to burn, you don't care if you've got a parachute or not, believe you me. It's quick. And anyway, I grabbed the chute, clipped it on, ripped the root cord and an armful of parachute and out I went. And the next thing, the chute opened and I hit a sandy ploughed uh, field. And I didn't know whether we were in England or where. had no idea. And I packed my chute and hit it. And or I'd dislocated both thumbs when I landed. And I can remember to this day standing on a thumb and pulling, click till it went back to shape. And there was blood streaming out of my wrists through bits of metal. So I came across a little um, cottage in this little village and I didn't know whether who was in it. So I knocked on the door and an old, old French man came to the door and uh, I realised then that I must be in northern France. I was still only about oh, 20 miles from the coast but there was a 90 mile an hour northerly wind blowing and with one engine my ground speed was only about 80 miles an hour. Well, it must have been about 90 because otherwise I would have gone backwards. And, um, I had the real problem of if I was over the water, I couldn't bail the crew out, nor could I attempt a landing, because if I was over the water, I'm dead, and so is all the crew. If I'm over land, um, I would do a crash landing on one engine in somewhere where I didn't know where it was. because. In the big explosion over Duisburg, the radio arrows went boof. After the war, uh, when I was, not after the war, after I got back, after I escaped, they had a plot of this unidentified aircraft. And we used to have a, a transmitter called IFF, Identification Friend Foe. And, um, it must have got knocked out because they had this strange aircraft plotted halfway across the channel and then turning around and going back because I knew that the only way we could save our lives was to go south because at least I had my 
airspeed plus 90 miles an hour from the um, gale that was blowing. That particular night, I think, three quarters of the bomber stream turned back. They got a recall, but we didn't get one because we had a damaged radio and whatever. So I landed and uh, told this old French person and his wife, it was a little wee stone cottage, it wouldn't be a hell of a lot bigger than this room. And I knew that if the Germans would have, my aircraft was nearby and it had blown up and it was burning away there and ammunition and bang bang and it was only about a quarter of a mile away, so the Germans wouldn't have been long in um, turning up. And if they found these old people harbouring an enemy bomber pilot, <coughs> it wouldn't have been good news for them. So I said, where's the nearest Germans? And they said, Dulons. And uh, I said, well, go and get them and tell them that you've got a wounded uh, Allied pilot here, which they did. Well, the next thing the Germans turned up, and they were very good. I'm lying on a bed, uh, and it's that sort of a sofa thing. Oh, and I forgot to say, my navigator was a French Canadian, and he met up with the froggies, and he, historically, it's in the book, he got back to England because he could speak perfect French. My French was not bad, it was a schoolboy. And, um, he came into this little hut, room, house, and said, right, I'm off, come on, skip, come with me. So I swung my legs off the bed and fell over. I hadn't realised that the reaction had set in and I couldn't move my hands or my feet or anything. I said, Bert, go for your life. Uh, I'll just have to put up with it. So off he went. And um, the Germans came and got me. By this time the villages had all formed up in two rows and as I went where the Germans helped me to walk between these rows, I remember to this minute the uh, people were saying, oh, pauvre diable, and then poor devil, and I thought, oh, God, you know, this is what happens before you get shot. And um, anyway, they, the Germans asked for uh, name, rank and number. I was Flugzeugführer, which is a German uh, captain here, Führer. And um bin ein Hutwin. And that's uh, I'm a captain. So they, the Germans were intensely conscious of rank and discipline, and they treated me with every courtesy and took me to Doulons, and then the ambulance came in from Armians. And they took me to Armin's where they played around with my eye and my wrists and hands and my shins. And that was just one cannon shell hitting the control column. So uh, I was then, after a few days, that was the night of the 9th of April, 1943. And I was, when I was able to travel, I was two quizzling Swedish uh, guards had to escort me to Dulag Luft, which was the number one interrogation camp for a downed aircrew. 
And we got on a train and I went to a station in Paris and I'm standing there with my black uh, New Zealand flying boots, my full uniform. And the next thing, a German comes up, a, a Lieutenant Oberst, Lieutenant Colonel, and he tore into me for standing, lolling around without my cap on. And just then these Norwegians turned up and said, well, hang on, sir, he's a Allied aircrew. Because the German uh, Luftwaffe had the same colour uniforms as us, the, he, this guy had forgotten that we were wings here, they wore theirs there, and he thought I was a German officer standing uh, disgracefully on a Paris railway station. And boy, was his face ready. He apologised. He said, I'm sorry. So on the train I go, and then off to Julie Luft. And after a few days of pretty miserable torture, I was put on a train and sent to Stalag Luft 1, which was a Air Force mixed camp of officers and NCOs. And it was only about 20 miles from the sea and just across the other side was uh, Sweden. But um, I tried to escape and got caught by a bloody dog and um, went to a series of camps and the last one was um, at a place called Falling Bostel which was between Hanover and Hamburg. And I got out of there when we were changing compounds and had to go out of the camp and round down that way and then back into another gate to the new barracks that they put us in. And on the way round, as we went round the corner, I thought, well, it's nearly dark. So I just dived out of the, uh, there was about a thousand of us, and into the ferns, it was all forest and with these tracks through it. And I hid in the fern, waiting for a bullet, but nobody saw me. So that's it, I got through to um, the border of Holland. Getting over the Vasa River was tough, but it was frozen. And uh, managed to get across that. And got picked up <coughs> eventually by the 52nd Lowland Division and taken to uh, this place called Depots, where it was, it was an advanced um, collection base with mostly C-47s, as Dakotas or DC-3s, uh, ferrying wounded back to England. <coughs> so when, when about was this when you got to them? What sort of because it's obviously after the Allies had invaded, was it? Oh yes, yeah, this was um, the day after New Year's Day, 1945. So you spent quite a bit of time in the prison, but... 20 months. Okay. April 43 till the 1st of January 45, so which is 20 months I think you'll find. And how, how long was it between your escape from you know, into the ferns. How long was it before you got to the uh, British lines? Oh, I about nine days. 
Were there any hairy moments along the way? Yes. Um, only one thing really bothers me. I'm, I'm proud of my service. I'm proud of Bomber Command. I feel privileged to be alive and able to talk and think and walk and whatever. Um, but uh, one, I met up with some Russian escapees and they were going to be killed if they got caught. So they all wanted to attach themselves to my little group. This fellow, Stan Reed, was a escapee RAF that I'd picked up and we paired up. And he couldn't speak a word of French or German, he was a London policeman. And so we had to pretend that he was deaf and dumb. Uh, because we had, uh, I think it was Serbian or Czechoslovakian great coats and our uniforms underneath. But uh, we didn't risk him being asked any questions by any German because he would have given that game away. So I did all the talking. And these Russians attached themselves to me. Uh, to start it was four, two women and two men, and then it was ten, and they used to go out and pinch food and whatever. And I found that one of them had a 7.65mm pistol. So I took it off him, I ordered him to give it to me, and he did. And then the burgomaster from this little village uh, called Walsroder, um, he appeared and said, I'm not having an enemy living on the outskirts of my village. I'm the burgomaster. I'm going to go and get the Germans. And I had this pistol and I drew it and I said, if you move, I'll shoot you. Ugh, he said, he wouldn't do that. And so he just set off, so I shot him through and killed him. And it's always bugged me actually having to... I didn't mind or didn't think about dropping bombs on cities where they could have killed a hundred. I mean, you didn't know and you're more concerned of not getting killed yourself. But I hadn't ever shot at anybody before and I did it. And of course this scared hell out of the Russians. I thought I might turn a gun on them and see some of them too. But I was crawling through some little... The snow was very deep and the trees only stuck out of the ground about six feet. And I crawled round the end of a tree and there was a Scotsman with a sterling gun hung around his neck. And I'm face to face, only a foot away. And we're always told that if we did escape, uh, the Germans didn't used to swear. Donovito and Blitzen was about as much as I would say. So I used a whole raft of swear words, don't shoot me. And this Scotty's, I could hardly understand him, he was really broad. So he said, crawl that way. So I crawled and he was right behind me with a sterling hung around his neck. Anyway, he went to his company headquarters and from then on his assistant just took over and I was taken to uh, Depots because they knew that was a Air Force uh, clearing station, casualty clearing station 
And I know this is, sounds like a lot of bullshit, but it's not, it's the truth. They had been shot up by the German fighters, did a massive sweep on the 1st of January, and they wiped out the pilot's mess, and they didn't have a pilot to fly a C-47 full of wounded. There were dozens of C-47s there, but one was loaded up with wounded, I think it was 40 in it, in pallets, and a couple of nurses. And the CO said, can you fly a C-47? I said, yes, I flew one over a year ago, but it's like driving a car. Well, he said, taxi round the perimeter, and if you feel happy, uh, I'll give you a navigator and off you go back to um, England, which is what happened. So we all got back to England. I got a touch dysentery by this time, and I finished up in the same hospital as the wounded uh, military. And I know this to be true, but I can't prove it, and I don't want to prove it. Uh, because of my exploits, I was recommended. Or it, when I was escaping, I came across a huge depot of V2 uh, rockets at this village of Walsrader. So I naturally told the uh, military, and the next thing they sent a whole lot of typhoons and whatever, and blew the damn things up. Now I know, because I got told by a senior colonel, that I'd been recommended for a military cross, because it wasn't an air thing I was doing. I've, all I got out of it was the France-Germany star because the war went and finished and they hadn't done all the paperwork coming in from all over the world and I think the king had had it, he was sick and tired of dishing out gongs but I hears me thinking, oh I'm going to be one of the only airmen that ever got a um, military cross instead of a distinguished one cross and it never happened. Well, that's a pity. Yeah, well it was. But Kiwis were funny like that, though. We weren't rank conscious or metal conscious. As long as they left us alone and we didn't argue too much with them, they didn't care. So once you got back, I guess there was a quite an interrogation um, being an ex POW that oh, yes, they wanted to know everything. Yeah, yeah. They were more interested in how did I see morale. Uh, was the bombing offensive worrying them? Um, and I was able to answer all these things. So I was there, I was to see the house frails all marching off to church on Sunday morning around the perimeter of our camp with their children. They're deeply religious. In fact, the, the belt buckle of the Germans, the Britain on it was Gott mit uns, God with us. They were quite deeply religious. And they thought that God was going to help, and we thought God was going to help us. And I don't know who won the argument, but um, we won the war. But what about the actual time that you were in the prison camp yeah. um, for the 20 months? What was that like? Just life? Was it totally boring? Or it was you? okay when we were in Luft camps, but I was ordered by Group Captain, um, oh, I can't think of his name. He was a senior uh, British officer for all the Air Force POWs. And he ordered me to go to Falling Bostel because I could translate the German 
uh, and this camp had 8,000 prisoners in it and it was divided into four. One compound had a thousand Air Force in it, one had a thousand uh, Army, one had a thousand Mercantile Marine and Navy, and the other had a thousand Russians above the rank of Colonel. And um, But they weren't, uh, the group captain wasn't sure that we had an interpreter good enough to keep the Germans off our hammer. And um, if history will show that Hitler wanted to kill all the prisoners, so to save hassle or stop hassle between the prisoners and the German in uh, 1945, this was after the attempt on his life, um, the groupie, I think of his name before I'm finished, he wanted to make sure that the prisoners were well protected. Okay, the Germans had shot 50 airmen, but if it hadn't been for um, Goering, who was a took over von Richthofen's um, group in World War One, Hitler wanted to shoot all the prisoners, and he said no. He argued with the Führer because if he said if we do that, we have thousands of prisoners in British and American hands. <coughs> they'll turn around and shoot all them. So Hitler backed off and said, "Well." Um, he said, we've got to make an example, and Goering is alleged to have said, well, I wouldn't agree to more than 50. So they picked out the single ones, and luckily, I, I, otherwise I would have been at Sargon or three, but I've been told by the groupie to stay with the army and whatever, as a translator, and <coughs> I got treated very well. The food was almost non-existent. And if it hadn't been for Red Cross, I don't think any of us would have survived. The Germans didn't use to seal it. It has been alleged they used to seal the Red Cross parcels, but they didn't. Because they were getting Red Cross parcels. The ones that stole, and I know this for a fact, so I saw them do it, were the French prisoners. They did all the manual work around the railway stations. And when the Red Cross uh, wagon would arrive, they would make sure they got their share before it was given to the various um, reps of the prison camps who would come to collect the parcels. They were pretty irregular and you're lucky if you got one a fortnight. But we were all formed into combines and we used to share the parcels and do what we could with them. The Germans provided bread which was generally 20 years old, was like it's that stuff and uh, their idea of butter was an it's that stuff made out of coal yeah it was white and like margarine stuff and the coffee was made out of acorns and tea was tea but believe you me by the time the last of it was used up it had been through the boiling water about ten times. I was normally about 15 stone and when I got back to England I was 
seven stone ten, which was about uh, under fifty k. That's amazing. Um, those people that latched onto you after you escaped, have they escaped from the um, the same column of people? Or? No. Oh no, no. They were Russians, and the Russians were in small working parties. They called them up. Called them Arbeid commandos, and they were doing the manual work, uh, digging graves and uh, moving equipment and whatever, and they were all over the place. Well, of course, they were taking off, but they were going to get shot at the end of the war, if not by the Germans, by their own Russians. And so these Russians were all over the place, and the whole of the, this area of Germany I'm talking about was all pine forest, just like. Kangaroa was all pine forest in various square kilometres of one-year-old, no-year-old, ten-year-old, and it was dangerous to walk around in the um, when the shelling went on. Uh, it was dangerous to walk around in the mature trees because the splinters were awful. So most of us used to crawl around on the snow under the little trees. So just as you were um, crawling around by yourself, you came across some of these other people hiding in there. Is that how it happened? Or? Well, I had to stay and read with me. And um, we were recognised by some Russians who were hiding in a... They saw these people coming with greatcoats, which they knew weren't German. So they popped out and one of them could speak fragmentary English. But they knew enough German that we could communicate. And in no time, the, like, the four turned into eight. And then there was a, the problem of feeding them. So they used to go off and raid the railway stations and pinch Red Cross parcels and bring them back. And they were, the Russians were intensely disciplined. If I said do this, they'd do it. No argument. So we had enough making soup and uh, there were Germans used to put Swedes and potatoes into what they call clamps in the winter and cover it up with straw and stop them freezing and we would bandicoot a clamp and take us Swedes or turnips or potatoes and with the odd tins of corned beef in the Red Cross parcels make some sort of stew or something hot to drink. You had to be very careful about lighting fires to heat the stuff because the Germans would pick the smoke coming up. But uh, they were too busy fighting all over the place on their dens and on the border on the, of the Scheldt estuaries in Holland. And it was the 8th Army, which is included the 51st Highland and 52nd Lowland Divisions. And they were pretty trigger happy. So, uh, when, on one occasion, um, it was about summer 44, I was at this falling Bostol place, and the Russians started to die off like flies. And they remember, they were intelligentsia. 
they were all ranked colonel up to general and they were absolutely filthy. The only place they didn't use was their latrines. They just um, evacuate their innards on wherever they stood. And when they started to die of dysentery, uh, being the, uh, the senior British bloke, I might not have been in rank, uh, but the group captain didn't worry about trying to find a naval commander or anything. And I was told or ordered by the Germans to check the Russian compound every day because the rations went to the compounds in terms of how many numbers there were. Now the Russians used to put their dead in bunks, three tier bunks, and so they keep their ration strength up and get the um, food for the dead ones. Well, I would have to, with German escorts, walk through their barrack and I'd look at a bunk and if it was wet under the scrim, then clearly there was a dead person. So the uh, Russians would have to drag that body out and put it in a cart, like a wooden cart with wooden wheels. And in August alone, 44, I signed the German records for 500 in one grave. It was sandy soil and they dug this endless grave and just put the Russians in just like cordwood. And as the uh, grave progressed, they'd chuck in quick, um, what do you call it, lime, quick lime, and then cover it up and then dig a bit more. So every day we would add 20 or 30, well, it was 500 of them died in August out of 2000. Now, we didn't lose a single European Navy, Army or Air Force. And they lost all of them, I think. Well, when I got back to England, I went to one of the newspapers and said, oh, it was a big article, horror camp discovered at Falling Bostel. And that was where I'd been, where I escaped from. And so I went to the paper and said, look, I was there. I buried, they died of filth. And the um, newspaper, well, he might have been an editor, but he, anyway, he was a guy, I don't know what he was, but didn't care. And that was the daily something like telegraph or news. And he literally patted me on the head and said, look, Matty, we know what we saw. So a hell of a lot of the horror camps was, I think, in my own view, was that it was journalese. I've got no proof of it, but I know that those 500 did not get executed by the Germans. Amazing. That's, yeah, geez, that's amazing. What do you think was the worst part of your war? Was it the bombing, doing the bombing, or was it being in the camp? No, the... the... <coughs> air element that I didn't like, because the casualties were nearly 100%, was what we called gardening, that was laying mines. Because you had to fly at 120 knots. If you're going any faster, the parachute mine would uh, break up when it hit the water. 
at under 500 feet and losses. I, I, I went on a mining exercise one night at uh, St. Nazaire and St. Nazaire was a sub, big sub pens and they came down this little estuary and then the Isle de Bats was, if you can imagine, the uh, estuary went like a Y. The sub pens were at the where the longest bit of the Y was and the two arms of the Y in the in the V was the Isle de Bats and that was heavily fortified with light anti-aircraft stuff. Well can you imagine flying at 120 knots at under 500 feet with these gun emplacements only about three or four hundred yards away on each side. So Hero George, that uh, was mandatory, um, had to go in as number two. So it was six of us from our squadron and number one would normally go through before the Germans loaded it up and got to their guns and started to fire. Number two got everything shot at them. Number three was fairly safe because they had to rearm their bofers or whatever they used. Well, I went in as number two and never got a scratch, not a bullet hole, not anything. But number one and number three, four, five and six all got shot and blew up. So I got back as the only one that got back that night. And, it, you know, you just wonder, why me? All the other guys doing the correct thing, uh, we went as a squadron, our squadron had to put up six aircraft laying these 2,000 pound GP mines. They were, some were acoustic, some were electric. They all had um, 2,000 pound of explosive amatol or something in them and they were meant to when we bombed the sub-pens, the theory was that the subs would take off and go out through these two channels uh, to dodge the bombing. Well, I'd, I've never heard any evidence that we ever got a sub doing that, but it, it was logic. If they had to go up these arms of the Y, where the mines were, they couldn't escape getting blown up. And that was at the heat of the Battle of the, of the Atlantic. But it was very dangerous, and yet we only got counted half an operation until later in the war when they suddenly realised, hell, we're losing a lot of people doing mining. It must be equal to an operation. When they did realise, did they count back and no, check? No. No. Jeez. Well, Bomber Command had to do a number of roles. One was mining, one was looking for dinghies in the North Sea. Lots and lots of RAF had to ditch in the North Sea and the only was that uh, squadrons in turn would go on a what they call a dinghy hunt. And that, uh, for a start, didn't count as anything. It was a navigation exercise. Then they decided that a dinghy hunt would be worth a quarter of an operation. And then because of the losses, and it was dangerous, everybody was saying, well look, to hell with this uh, dinghy hunt business. The J-88s were coming out from 
uh, Germany and looking for low-flying heavy aircraft, looking for dinghies and shooting them down. And I think that our dinghy hunts picked up as many RAF as what they did uh, uh, Germans. The Germans had a field day, so they then decided that it would count as one hop. But this wasn't until 1944. Well, I'd done all mine in 42 and 43. Then daylights counted as two ops at the end of the war because the Germans could see you and they would attack and they had pretty sophisticated defence. It was only one op when I was operating. And it was daylights, gardening, and all Anyway, my ops, had I been credited the way it turned out, would have mounted to about 35. As it was, I got 28. And some were bloody dangerous. But you didn't think about it. When you got experience, what, um, one of the anti-aircraft uh, guns fired a string of uh, shells and they we called them flaming onions because they'd come up like a string all the way up was these bright shining lights. Well if you could see them in more than one you didn't worry about them because you knew that they weren't pointed at you. If you could only see one or say two, you'd think, oh hell, just a minute, get out of here. And straight away, you'd see 10 or 15 of them coming all the way from the ground. And at that point, especially when you were mining, your rear gunner would open up with four groundings and shut a few of them up, plus the low-level searchlights. And you only learnt these things by uh, experience. And that's why the great majority of guys that got, uh, didn't get returned for whatever reason, might have been gunfire, might have been whatever, um, didn't know how to dodge some of the enemy. Just for instance, one thing that accounted for hundreds and hundreds of bombers, and the RAF never told us, was that the Germans had put a cannon on the upper deck of any 110 and it would fly underneath the bomber and it could fire a burst of cannon shells into the guts of the bomber and we were never told and we had no prevention and uh, nobody looking out underneath, we didn't have a ball turret on the link or any other aircraft for that matter. <coughs> if we had have known that the Germans were getting underneath here and bombing because once you're all dead, you don't write letters home and say, hey, do you know that the Germans have got a ME-110 firing upward cannons? No, because you weren't. You're dead. Or at the very least, you were prisoners. Well, I never knew until after the war till I read in some of these reference books that that's what the Germans were doing. And we were a very highly experienced squadron. And yet nobody told us... Uh, it could have been that the ones that could have told them were all dead anyway. But the Germans certainly had that sussed. And we found after the war, ME-110s, 
equipped with a, a 36 millimeter cannon and four or five uh, shots into the guts of the plane is going to cripple your controls or the crew or data fire or do something. The Wellingtons were very good, they could catch a light and survive it, but Stirlings and Halifaxes and Lynx were very vulnerable when it came to the placement of their tanks. See, for a long time early in the war, we didn't even have self-sealing tanks. The Germans did, because our philosophy was we've got so many bombers that there's nothing can get near us. Now, the Yanks found it out to start with. For a while I was an instructor on, for the 8th Army Air Force at St. Evil, teaching the Americans flying liberators and forts what the rules were about takeoff and landing. Because England was just a hive of aeroplanes going every way, which way. And so the Americans needed to be taught. There was an absolute drill. You took off, you made a left hand turn to 1500 feet, you flew parallel with the runway, and then you orbited off in your exercise. Whereas um, the Americans would take off from their revetment, boom, straight across the airdrome. Oh, the funny things I saw at St. Evil, the Americans, they used to bribe us to take them on uh, test flights because they got double their pay, it was flying pay, provided they did four hours a month. Well, we were well on to this one. So gave us scotch or beer or money. The Americans' pay was enormous. A technical master sergeant used to get about $400 a month, I think it was. As a pilot officer, we got eight pounds a week, which was about $16 a month. So the Americans, their PX were terrific. They had everything you could think of. I remember um, one of the first 8th Army Air Force raids on the subpins in uh, France. One fort came back and it had a massive, or about a foot size, hole in one of the airplanes. And I swear the whole American 8th Army Air Force on St. Evil filed past looking up at this hole, about that high, saying, God damn those boys had it hard, look at that. Well, I got back one night after flying over a, an unknown battery of uh, anti-aircraft. Uh, over France, and we counted 81 holes in my air aircraft, and it, nobody got touched. Wow. I, this Morley history um, went from deep in France for about 50 miles, and halfway down the history they'd put a bridge across, and on this bridge, it was a rough bridge, they'd put a half a dozen um, flak guns. Now, nobody knew it was there. I didn't know, and I'd bombed up and down um, or well south. And I thought uh, the navigator said, we're over the sea, Skip, 
because I looked out and in the moonlight I could see it was sea. So right, I'm letting down from about 24,000 down to really to arrive at base, about north. Not a care in the world. I'd stop weaving. Weaving was where you went like that. And all of a sudden, boom! And serious laundry bill. And there was one shell went off in front of the uh, aircraft, in front of the front gunner. One went off just outside each wing, and one went off right by the tail gunner. A perfect bracket, but not one. The bits went all over the place, but not one of them hurt any of us. The engine stopped with a sudden vacuum caused by the explosions. And uh, so I put the motor down and they started again within a few seconds. Couldn't believe it. Got home, the airplane perfectly flyable. And my crew, uh, sergeant, the ground crew, said, Sir, look at you, you've done to your bloody airplane. And I said, Why, well, what, what matter? Well, he said, It's full of holes. So we got a torch and went round with the torch looking at the counting the holes. And it was unbelievable, but how that's the way the cookie crumbles. Pretty tough, the Wellington. Well, they were geodetic construction, more like lattice work. And they were fabric. Now, the metal, if it got hit, it would melt, and uh, aluminium, when it starts to melt, it's bloody hot. Whereas the Wellington was fabric covered. So if a shell went through the uh, geodetic and caught fire to the fabric, the speed through the air used to mean just a little strip would burn off. And anyway, I've actually uh, flown in training at Wellington where all the fabric came off the, leading, the top edge of my port wing, which was outside my port motor, and I didn't understand why when every time I went into practice land, my left wing would drop. And I'd just come back from leave and I thought, hell, I better practice a bit, I've lost it. And finally uh, I landed and she ground left. And I'm walking away with my parachute, it was just me and the uh, wireless operator. And I look back and here was all this pink on the upper surface of the wing and all the fabric had gone from the motor out to the wingtip and yet the aircraft still flew. But of course when I lost speed to land there was no lift on the wing and I was doing hairy landings and every time we did one of those you had to report it to the engineer people in case you'd uh, stuffed up a hydraulic or something or other. So I felt very embarrassed about leaving my aeroplane and having to walk home until I saw this wing and I thought, wow. That's amazing, absolutely amazing. But the, I mean, there's so many stories of the Wellington losing the fabric and still flying. Yes, so yeah. So the, the actual wing structure must have been reasonably aerodynamic in itself, I guess. Well, they were pretty thick. I mean, the, in photos, 
the wings don't look. There's books down there called the Wellington and the uh, Manchester, I think, yeah. and it shows a number of aircraft that it actually landed, and you can see all the geodetic. They were generally liked um, by nearly every pilot. They were as if you'd got the like aeroplane, it would have been a Wellington, like a modern Mark. Or if you had a dislike, it would be the Manchester. I've got pictures there, and that's Lancaster or Mark III, of the uh, Manchester, showing just how bloody awful that things were. And Rolls-Royce had egg on their face forever, because of, all they did was they put Bastry two Merlin side by side, connected to a single shaft. But the lubrication couldn't take care of the 24 cylinders at all going off at once. What about in your actual training in Canada and that? Did you have any problems or any scary moments there? No, none, none whatever. The aircraft that we flew were Cessna cranes and they were like a little bowfighter. They were twin-engine, low engines, Lycoming motors, uh, constant-speed air screws. All the inside of them was exactly the same as, as the Ford V8 of those days. For instance, the petrol gauge was a stained ink stuff, just like in a V8 used to be. Uh, they had retractable undercarriages, which was the first time we'd ever flown those things. If you went to stall, the nose would politely drop and get airspeed up. And they were actually designed as a commuter aircraft for wealthy businessmen, in much the same way as the Learjets and that are today. But they accounted for a, a lot of dead trainees, for instance, in two weeks, and when I was at Saskatoon, I went to the funerals of 24 uh, of my course, 24 out of the 40 out of us. And they didn't know what had happened until the doctors found out that they'd all suffered from um, poisoning because the heating uh, on the Cessna was off the exhaust manifold and it heated air which blew through, blew it like a modern motor car. And the uh, manifold had perforated until a lot of the exhaust gases were coming into the cabin and uh, the pilots were going unconscious and just diving in. Now, a guy called Les Gillen, who was a great friend of mine, he was my roommate, we were doing a, a formation exercise one day, only one person on each aircraft, me and on mine and him on his. And when you're flying along and he's tucked in under your wing, uh, you don't just suddenly uh, turn right or turn left. You always make sure that he knows what you're doing. We had signals and radio, and I'd say, right, though. There's your turn to lead, um, and there was no answer. I thought, oh, his radio's packed. 
So I said, I'm making a port turn and still no answer. And I looked around, couldn't see him anywhere. So I said, I'm making a starboard turn because I was leading. And I made the starboard turn. As I made the turn, I saw an explosion on the ground. It was this aircraft that dove straight in from about 6,000 feet. And I remember they gave me his watch to send home to his parents and a steel watch like this, it would, you'd swear somebody would hit it with a sledgehammer. Well then they found out, after the um, medical tests, that all this happened within a fortnight or so, that this was the reason why everyone was crashing. I'd reported sick on one occasion, I reported sick to the MOE, I said, I nearly went to sleep and I was in a shallow dive doing about 290 when suddenly I snapped awake and uh, I want to report it because it might be something, you know, it didn't muck around with colds or, or dizziness or anything like that, you always reported it, just in case. There was something wrong with you, where you'd kill yourself or your crew. And I snapped out of it, and I didn't know that I'd. I just felt tired. I'd shut my eyes for about ten seconds. I'll be right. And then someone subconscious said, "No, don't." So I didn't know I was getting gassed. So I uh, opened one of the quarter light windows and it was good as gold in seconds. But I think to this day that Les, for one, was gassed and lost control and just drove straight in, wouldn't know. But no, otherwise the Canadians had it real sussed. They were funny on diet. We went into a restaurant one night and said, the woman said, what do you want? We said, fish and eggs. Fish and eggs? You Kiwis are funny. We've never heard of fish and eggs. Well, you fry the fish and you fry the eggs and the chips. The what? You mean buffalo chips or something? No, 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 chips. Don't you know what chips are? And the girl said, no. Well, it's fried potato. Oh, she said, French fries. So they brought the fish along on one little plate and the fries on another plate and the two eggs on another plate. And they stood there, these staff, absolutely aghast. We got the lot and tipped it all onto the one plate, like Kiwis did. So getting used to the North American habits were uh, funny, but they treated us extremely well. Um, the standards were very, very high. If you plotted your copybook, flying aeroplanes, you walked. I started off with um, my Course 8 pilots at Levin, with 44 on the course. When the war finished, there were two of that 44 alive. One was a bloke called Ivan Ehrlich, who died recently. And he's in one of these books. And me. The whole rest were dead.
That's amazing. Well, it, it's our casualties uh, were worse than submariners or any other element of the armed forces. But because it was a morale thing, nobody knew. But I guess because you were a fairly early course, yours would have been worse than later courses as well. No, no, no. The the um, bomber command losses persisted right through practically to the end of 1943. So the war had been going four years, and uh, the losses, uh, as I say, the majority of the losses were uh, early or late 42, the whole of 43. There's a book there called Bomber Boys or something, and it details, or there I can see the grey cover yeah. behind that piece of um, greenstone. Yeah. And that details the losses. There's another book being written called Night After Night, and that's an excellent book about how they deemed aircrew to be lack of moral fibre. They wouldn't accept that the human body would not stand up to um, 16 hours in tonight and tomorrow and the next night, like eight hours at a time of stress, fear, waiting for the children to come around their bum and lay your nuts off. You know, this, it wasn't like going into a submarine attack or a military uh, battle. From when you took off to when you landed, you were likely to get shot at, aircraft failed that you didn't know about, you'd been hit and something would break. The statistics show an enormous number of crews got killed on approaching their own airfields. When they went to land and slackened speed off a bit, the damage or the injury or whatever would take effect and in it would go. And I've had the enviable task of uh, Lancaster, for instance, crashed about uh, 500 yards short of the runway and blew up. And I had to take a team of medicos and traverse all the ground between the crash site and the runway. And we were picking up a flying boot with a leg and a foot in it, gloves, uh, two gloves. The doctors put, there was eight guys on that aircraft. The doctors put all the bits together and filled eight coffins. And military funerals for the eight or relatives came and got some of them. And about two months later, word came through that two of that crew were not even on the aircraft. They were prisoners. So even the doctors thought the pile of meat and gristle and bits of uniform all mashed up. They thought there was eight people there and there was only six. That, that's I mean terrible for you guys who happened to do that, but also those families who buried their loved ones and then find out they're not dead, what would they have thought? Well, they would be pretty happy about it. In this case, it wasn't a question of them saying, um, 
missing on operations or whatever, this was killed because the thing had blown up on its approach. So that, they would get a bigger shock than the missing in action often resulted in the person uh, not being dead, being a prisoner, or escaping the long way which took sometimes about three months to get back and they would be missing for three months. I was reported killed in action because on the same night, on the 9th of April, that I didn't return, a Scotch guy whose name was George Barclay, pilot officer, he got killed. And the numbers got mixed up. And the first I knew was that um, what happened? Oh, yeah, I got a letter from a lady called Jean, Darling George, and it was this guy's fiancé. Well, I knew perfectly well I didn't have a fiancé or anything. But I, this then alerted me to the fact that, well, what happened here in New Zealand? So I wrote a letter, and about nine months after I was crashed, my people got uh, a letter from me. And my sister was working for the PNT doing the telegrams used to come through, and she fainted to learn that I was not dead at all. They stopped my government superannuation. They wiped me off the classification list. I'm dead. I was in the freelancers, killed in action, and I wasn't. And then when I rejoined the department, uh, I had a held own job to prove uh, that the years in between I was entitled to annual salary increases and my uh, grading as a public servant had to be commensurate with the amount of service I'd done. And here's me trying to convince the State Service Commission that I'm still here and you guys have got to do something about it. A situation. It was, yeah. But did you write to the lady who had written to you, the Jean? No. So oh no, that would have been cruel. Yeah. And anyway, he only got a couple of uh, letters. I think we got about one a fortnight, and you couldn't put anything in them. So, were you able to actually talk to representatives of the Red Cross? Like, would someone come and visit the camp and you could sort that kind of thing out, or...? Yes, yes, but only twice did I see the Red Cross. They were normally from Geneva, from Switzerland, and they were pretty clued up. There used to be lots of jokes about them, about what the Kriegies would say to the Red Cross. But I better not repeat them. <laughs> Make it out that you were better treated than that sort of thing, was it? No, 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 no. Uh, I, uh, the only time I was ill-treated was when I was at Dulay Luft. And <clears throat> what their technique there uh, became apparent to me instantly because they didn't know I could understand German. And when you went in for interrogation, I'd say, I, can, I would say, I can now give you rank, uh, name, rank and number. And then as soon as I'd say that, there'd be 
out, aim, fire, and be a burst of rifle fire, and an ar noise. And that was, to the uninitiated, that would have meant that they dragged somebody out and shot him. But the German would say in German to, his, to the other interrogator, that'll frighten hell out of him, he'll tell us now. And they hadn't shot anyone at all. But it was just a, a thing put on to frighten you into. They, uh, the aircraft as I came down in had one of the uh, first of the navigation aids, radio aids called G. It was subsequently improved on, but G, you could navigate pretty well. It would position you on your own runway if you could read it properly. And the Germans were very keen to find out more about this G. Well, what they didn't know or, or wouldn't accept was that the pilots didn't know how to work the bloody G anyway. It was so secret that the navigator was the only one that knew how to work it. And what made it work? I would poke my head around the navigator's compartment and see this blue light like old-fashioned TV with lines going up and down. Now the operator could read it and navigate by it, but I didn't have a clue and I didn't care. The navigator's job was to navigate. My job was to keep a lookout, listen to the crew screaming out, look out, brake left and do whatever. So the Germans um, were pretty cruel at this Judag lift. You were put in a cell uh, and it would be no longer than seven feet long and it had a wooden bed which sloped downhill like that from the top to the bottom, sloped downhill and it was made of slats of timber, no mattress and the slats were about an inch apart. Well. To try and sleep on that was hopeless because these slats would get into your ribs and God knows what not. There was no toilet and the heat was, they had heat us all around the room and the heat was horrendous. And if you wanted to urinate or defecate, you had to do it on the floor. They wouldn't let you out for toileting. And it was meant to bust, and see, a lot of us, uh, had injuries with healing and um, you hear these screams and yells well, it didn't personally worry me because I knew it was an act but it certainly worried a whole lot of other guys that didn't know but the average air crew didn't have all the war department secrets or anything like this I mean any more than what the Germans let their flyers tell them where the army was going to attack next. So a lot of bulls were went on between the two sides, I can tell you that. But that was the only time really, uh, when I was at Falling Bystall, the food was terrible and very short, as I said before. But at Dulag Luft, uh, they would promise you, look, uh, you tell us uh, this, that, or whatever they wanted to know, and we'll take you to the Bavarian Alps and you can have all the beer and ladies that you want. You know, all sort of inducements like that. Well, whatever cue is where we went stupid.
But I do know there was Phyllis fell for it. What about your the rest of your crew? You said you navigator got home. Yeah. What about the rest of your crew? They all um, were picked up and taken prisoner, but I never saw any of them again until after the war. And I was walking down the Strand and a um, flight sergeant in uniform saluted me and it turned out it was by Bomber. And we kept in correspondence. We actually, Mary and I have been to England and stayed with him. He had a most marvellous job. He was a chief of Ballantyne's um, Roman spirits and he was seconded to live in Jamaica for most of his working life. And his name was Bob Hart. And, but they were taken off to NCO camps. And this fellow saluted me and this warrant officer and I, hell of a shock. It was Bob Hart and that was the first I'd seen of any of my crew. Uh, Bert Marin, my navigator, was a French Canadian and he went back to Canada and I got a letter from his widow. He died at a very young age, about 40. Had a heart attack, and he was a school teacher up in Alaska or somewhere like that. Um, my wireless up, I never heard of again. My original one, the night I bought it, he had a cold and he wasn't allowed to fly. So he flew with another pilot, a friend of mine, and he got killed over uh, Hamburg about August 43. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.
Thank you.